0: Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, a deadly bus crash, a moment of silence in the House of Commons.
1: I now invite honorable members to rise.
0: We'll hear a reaction from political leaders after two children lose their lives at a daycare in Laval, Quebec. Also. You know, I think to to say the least, I think we were a little disappointed at that. Assessing the offer, the provinces are reviewing Ottawa's healthcare proposal. Has the opportunity to revamp healthcare delivery been lost? Will the deal force more privatization in the system? We'll speak to members of parliament. And.
2: We're gonna buy America.
0: We're gonna buy America. A U.S. State of the Union address heavy on pledges to support American industry, heavy on environmental investment to modernize the U.S. economy. What economic challenges does Biden's speech create for Canada? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. It is rare that we begin our program outside the world of politics. But tonight, politicians of all stripes and Canadians right across the country have their eyes on Laval, Quebec, where earlier today a 51-year-old man drove a bus into a daycare, sending six children to hospital and leaving two other children dead. Witnesses say the driver entered the daycare's parking lot, accelerated and crashed into the daycare. But police would not comment on a motive nor on the driver's state of mind. The driver is now charged with two counts of first-degree murder. And as for the political reaction, here's what we heard today in Ottawa.
3: Rien ne peut effacer la douleur et la peine que ces familles et que cette communauté sont en train de vivre maintenant. Mais nous allons effectivement être là pour eux dans les jours, les mois et les années à venir pendant qui font un dé inimaginable. Je veux aussi remercier évidemment les premiers répondants et tous ceux qui ont intervenu pour aider, pour sécuriser la situation. Nous allons continuer de les garder proches dans nos pensées, dans nos prières.
4: Comme père de famille, je peux imaginer la souffrance des familles affectées et nous offrons tous notre support
5: et nos prières pour ces familles-là. Aujourd'hui. La nation québécoise est en deuil, et nos cœurs sont aux côtés de ceux de la communauté lavalloise. I just want to take a moment to acknowledge the really horrific tragedy in Laval. Uh, I don't have the words express how horrible it is. I just want to acknowledge the, the first responders and, and send my thoughts to the families of the victims.
0: With that, we're now joined by three members of Parliament. Adam Vancouverden is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Health, also the Liberal MP for the Ontario riding of Milton. Dr. Stephen Ellis is the Conservative Health Critic and the MP for the riding of Cumberland-Colchester in Nova Scotia, and Don Davies is the NDP member for the riding of Vancouver Kingsway and sits on the Common Standing Committee on Health. Uh, welcome to the three of you. Uh, you know, we invited you here to, to initially talk about healthcare, and we will get there, but. I I did want to first and foremost give you guys the opportunity to talk about what happened in Laval today. Uh, Mr. Vancouverden. your thoughts on the matter?
5: Well, it's just such a horrible, horrible tragedy and uh, I know that I speak for every member of the House of Commons and certainly Canadians from coast to coast to coast when I express condolences and say that we're all grieving together. This isn't just a tragedy for the families in Laval, it's one that uh, every Canadian will feel And, uh, you know, when parents drop their kids off at daycare, uh, they have an expectation that they're going to see their kids at the end of the day, and my heart goes out to the families that are impacted. It's such a tragedy.
0: Dr. Ellis?
6: Thank you, Michael. And certainly, I want to echo the comments of my colleague, and and, uh, as a grandfather of two children about the same age, uh, it's one of those situations that one can't even imagine to put yourself in understand the grief of those families affected by this, the parents, the grandparents, uh, the siblings and this is something that we as Canadians will feel for a very, very long time and I know that we'll come together as Canadians and support those
0: families. Mr. Davies?
1: Well, I I joined with my colleagues uh, who I think said it so eloquently, Um, you know, what a tragedy of unbelievable epic proportions, I, I can't think of. Uh, a more horrific event that could happen to anybody and so uh, as many have said there are no words. I think it's a time for us just to open our hearts and uh, send out our strongest feelings of strength and healing to the families involved and uh, to all the children and uh, um, it's really unimaginable what they're going through but uh, all of Canada agrees with them.
0: Absolutely. Uh thank you thank you for that i didn't think it was appropriate to begin any conversation today without acknowledging uh, what happened in laval quebec so we'll of course keep following the story and keep following the investigation but for now let's turn back to the original intention of the panel and to discuss the health care proposal that came out yesterday
2: there a lot in a way of new new uh, new funding Uh, that is uh, a part of this package that has been put together by the federal government and so um, you know, I think to, to say the least, I think we were a little disappointed at that.
0: Well that was Heather Stephenson, the Premier of Manitoba, also the current chair of the Council of the Federation, uh, reacting to the federal government's funding proposal for health care. Now the dollar figure is tens of billions of dollars less than what the provinces were looking for annually and provincial officials, well they are right now assessing how the proposed amounts might affect their own health care agendas. So with that, let's bring in the MPs once again. Uh, Mr. Vancouver, I'll begin with you, The, the provinces as you heard there say they are disappointed with the money that's on the table uh, the conservative leader also calling the money inadequate are you worried canadians will judge liberals harshly for not responding to the health care crisis essentially with more dollars
5: well, first of all, thank you, Michael. I would say that this is the largest ever increase to this transfer and a $198 billion investment in our health care over the next 10 years. Not only is it a staggering number, it's also targeted investments, investments in really specific areas that my colleagues and I from the Health Committee have identified as key areas of need. Uh, I was actually grateful to hear today that the leader of the Conservative Party, Pierre Polyev, said that he would respect this agreement and the notion that he would also respect uh, that this agreement is in accordance with the Canada Health Act, meaning that all of this uh, money will be contributing to a system which is universal and public. They, uh, they must respect the Canada Health Act and that means that our health care delivery will continue to be one where which is accessed by somebody's health card and not their credit card. Um, So I'm grateful to hear that he'll be respecting that uh, and and not not challenging us on the amount. Um, I would just love to see uh, the Conservative Party come to the table on affordability measures uh, like our dental care plan and early learning and child care, which is at this time saving families across the country hundreds of dollars a month.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Ellis, you know, let, let's pick up on the point uh, of what your leader had to say today in regards to the health care proposal, though, because Pierre Polyev, as we heard from Mr. Vancouverton, did say that he would uphold the funding agreement if your party forms the next government. But if he thinks the funds are inadequate, and again, he said that, does that mean that he will pledge more money down the road?
6: I think the thing, Michael, that's very clear after listening to uh, Mr. Polyev today, that what we understand after eight years of this liberal government is that the cupboard is bare they've spent the money they've spent them on a lot of uh, unusual things and uh, for instance a 15 billion dollar government handout to a company that doesn't exist Uh, those types of expenditures and waste Is what has allowed us to get uh, to a point as a country where we are, where we have a government that has added more to the national debt than every government before it. That is why Mr. Polyev uh, has made it very clear that we'll need to understand the, the financial situation of this country when we come to the actual solution, which is to elect a conservative government. I want to make it clear also, Michael, that. Uh, my colleague talked very clearly about mental health, but we know that they committed $4.5 billion to a Canada mental health transfer, which has never happened. There's a mental health crisis in this country. One in three Canadians are suffering with their mental health. they pledged the money. They refuse to transfer it. Uh, these types of things from this government continues
0: to make us suspicious of what their motives really are. Mr. Davies, what's your reaction to what the federal government is proposing right now?
1: Well, Jugmeet Singh and and our party have been pushing the Prime Minister for months and months now to uh, sit down with the Premiers to address what I think we all regard as an absolute crisis in our healthcare system across the country, Uh, so we're pleased that they sat down. We also uh, compelled the Liberals to include a provision in the Confidence and Supply Agreement that obligated the government to provide uh, ongoing stable funding to address the emergency crisis, so we're happy to see some money there, but let's be clear. Uh, as we start to really unravel the details of what was, uh, of what, uh, was announced yesterday, um, is a fair bit of, I think, uh, best word is spin, worst is deception going on. There is not $198 billion of additional funding. Um, what the Liberals are counting is $150 billion of what would have been the normal natural increase in the Canada Health Transfer over the next 10 years that preceded this agreement. The new money is only $46 billion over 10 years. That amounts to $4.6 billion a year, split between 10 provinces and three territories. Um, That is not sufficient for the generational transformative change that we need. And second, I just want to comment, there was not only not a single string attached to ensure that this money goes into the public system, but actually it wasn't even raised by the Prime Minister. And the Canada Health Act is one thing, but allowing premiers to divert this money into a private for-profit delivery, regardless of the taxpayer paying for it, is not defending public health care and it'll risk cannibalizing our public system, making the crisis even worse.
0: Oh, okay, Mr. Vancouver, and let's pick up on that point then, because you know, if the money is not what the provinces were looking for, how does that protect this country's you know, public health care system or is the government willing to accept greater privatization as a means of solving the health care crisis?
5: Well, I would like to address one thing first of all. The Prime Minister was very clear in both the press conference yesterday and question period today that all of these dollars will respect the Canada Health Act, which means that all of this funding and healthcare will continue to be delivered in a public system and universally, not with somebody's credit card, but with their health card. That's what Canadians expect and deserve. That's what they've always come to expect.
0: But respectfully, the Canada Health Act doesn't prohibit privatization. It just uh, means that uh, there's meant to be public access where dollars wouldn't determine uh, one's access to health care. but it doesn't prohibit privatization.
5: The The Canada Health Act does stipulate that it needs to be delivered publicly and universally, and that's point one. Point two is on mental health. In 2017, this government committed $5 5 billion dollars to mental health across the country that was the first investment yesterday we committed an incremental 2.4 billion dollars to mental health across the country through that same transfer through that same transfer and there are and will be further investments including initiatives that we've worked with uh, each other on like a 3 digit hotline for mental health and many more services as well i can't couldn't agree more with my colleague that there is a mental health crisis which includes addictions and i would point out also that the conservative party has been very clear about how and notionally how they would deal with the addictions crisis across this country which is completely outside the realm of science and evidence it's actually a dangerous proposal that puts people's lives at risk so i think this plan continues to be one that's uh, that's directly in line with five priorities that we've laid out we've also got a two billion dollar investment in pediatric care uh, because that was very, very clearly articulated from Children's Healthcare Canada and many other organizations that caring for children is not like caring for chi- tiny little adults. It's very, very different. There's also a $2 billion provision for indigenous health, which is delivered by the federal government as well. So to suggest that there are no strings attached or there aren't clear priorities is a false notion.
0: Dr. Ellis, how do you respond to that? Uh, because uh, as you heard, uh, over the last couple of days, there's been a great concern about privatization. Is that something the Conservative Party would be concerned about?
6: Well, I think, Michael, I would take great umbrage with what my colleague said in terms of these funding announcements for mental health. If you're not actually transferring the money, you can talk about it all day long and it really doesn't make any difference in the lives of Canadians who are out there suffering. Five million Canadians without access to a family doctor, 1.2 million Canadians waiting for procedures. Uh, we know that these are issues that we get emails about every day and I'm sure that my colleagues do as well and I find that difficult to believe that they want to continue to ignore that we talk about uh, my colleague talked about pediatric strategies you know we have a government that can't even get simple things like acetaminophen and ibuprofen on the shelves we know that from the website drugshortages.ca that every pediatric uh, antibiotic that I would have used as a family physician is now in stage 3 shortage. These are things that are unconscionable for a country that that we all know and love that we have this incredible healthcare system that is that is in the words of the former president of the Canadian Medical Association we have a system that is collapsing on the brink of collapse around us. And to think that these, uh, these measures that, that this government is announcing are going to help that and actually get in the hands of Canadians and make a difference in their lives and in their health, that is absolute falsehood.
0: Uh, Mr. Davies, do you share the same assessment?
1: Um, well, pretty much. But uh, look, I mean, there's different positions and, and takes on things, but then there's facts. And, and the fact is, is that the Canada Health Act um, does not prohibit private delivery through a for-profit clinic. And that's what Doug Ford and the other premiers are doing. And so it's misleading and deceptive for the Liberals to try to portray that they're standing up for the public system when they have attached no string to make sure that the additional federal funds go to the public healthcare system. And what the warning is, is that the problem in the healthcare system, one of the major ones right now, is a shortage of healthcare workers who are getting burnt out in the public system. If we open up more private for-profit clinics, it's well known that they're going to be a drain on personnel from the public system, making wait times longer and jeopardizing the problem in the public system, exacerbating the crisis. And so Canadians need to understand that. This is not a defense of public health care. It may be a defense of the Canada Health Act, but not of public health care. And we're going to keep fighting to build up our hospital system and our clinic system because we know it's the cheapest, most effective, most equitable way to deliver care in this country.
0: Well, as I said, the provinces are right now reviewing the proposal. Canadians still learning more about it. So without a doubt, we'll continue our conversation down the road. But for now, uh, Mr. Vancouverden, Dr. Ellis, Mr. Davies, thank you for the time. Thank you, Thanks, Thanks Michael. Michael. Well, it's not just the provinces going over Ottawa's proposed funding plan for health care. Several health groups right across the country are also looking very closely at the proposal, and that includes Health Care Can, the national voice for health care associations and hospitals across the country. Dr. Michael Gardam chairs the organization's board of directors. He joins us right now. Dr. Gardam, good to see you again.
2: Yeah, thanks for having
0: me. Now, there was a lot of talk uh, about transforming Canada's health care system before yesterday's meeting of the first ministers. But the proposal, when you look at the dollar figures, is a lot less than what the provinces were asking for. $4.6 billion annually versus $28 billion. Did the federal government miss its chance to help transform health care?
2: It's an interesting question. I mean, you know, we're the first ones to say that throwing, you know, an infinite amount of money into Canadian health care the way it is, is probably money not well spent. We do think that certainly the situation we're in post-pandemic, now that we're three years into this, um, we definitely need some help with funding, but we truly need to get into transforming our healthcare system. And that's a little bit less about money and more about the provinces taking on the really hard questions about, you know, what should our healthcare system look like going into the future? We've had pretty much the same system now going on, you know, since Medicare was created, and our system is not performing well compared to other countries.
0: It's interesting you say that because that is essentially the the arguments that we're hearing from government members right now. And when you look at this deal, immediately uh, you're looking at a two billion dollar top up that comes with no strings attached. Then there are these annual increases and side deals if the provinces say yes. So let's break that up, if you don't mind. Beginning with the $2 billion, where do you see that money helping out the most?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think every province will be different. And that's one of the things that probably the provinces like about this. We're not all the same, you know. So, you know, here in my province, we have a number of serious challenges with with health staffing. So any, anything that we could put that money towards being able to recruit more people here would be a real bonus for us. Uh, we're having a huge push into uh, reforming primary care, seniors care, home care. You know, the reality is that there's really no part of health care here on the island that I couldn't use money for. So we will have no problem spending whatever our, our share of that is. I think the... You know, to me, the more interesting part is the money coming later, which has some strings attached. Healthcare Can's very supportive of having some strings attached because, honestly, we can't just keep throwing money into a system if it's not going to be nudged into a better direction. And so hopefully those uh, accountability agreements will, will give some measure of that to allow us to start to focus on, you know, key things that we need to focus on.
0: Okay, give some measure. But really, what can Ottawa do if it's not anting up more money to the table?
2: Well, that's it. And, and that's why it always comes down to, you know, the premiers can argue all they want that the Feds aren't, aren't giving them enough money. But the reality is, you know, the provinces are very clear that health care is in, is in their authority, that healthcare is owned by the provinces. To me and to healthcare can what that means is they also own the transformation of healthcare so you're right the feds can't do a whole lot here um and we've seen that for decades they can give more money they can sort of attach some stipulations to it but ultimately to get the healthcare system that canadians want all 13 of our canadian healthcare systems are going to have to figure out what that looks like going forward and the feds can't be all that much help with that, except to say, follow the Canada Health Act. It has to be, you know, we have to be able to care for each other in different provinces and territories, etc. But it's, um, we've spent a long time pointing fingers at different levels of government. But the reality is, I think the, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, healthcare can feel strongly that the provinces need to step up at this point and figure out what the future looks like.
0: Do you think that includes more privatization? Because for many, that that is a red line to cross. Although a recent poll just published earlier this week says now a majority of Canadians are willing to look at more private health care because yeah. they're just sick of not having care.
2: You know, personally, I think we feel that everything should be on the table. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we're for or against privatization. But I think to just say no to something isn't helpful. We should look at, is this going to help serve Canadians? Is it going to save costs while providing better care? Then maybe we should look at it. I think the other thing that often Canadians don't realize is we have roughly the same proportion of private care already in our system compared to the United States. So all those those fee-for-service doctors, are private operators. The pharmacists are private operators. Uh, when you go to get your eyes checked, those are, those are private operators. Um, and so we have roughly the same proportion. And so really, we're just talking about um, really thinking about where could other private operators potentially give us better service. Because ultimately, in my mind, it shouldn't be about whether it's private or public. It should be about are we serving Canadians and can we provide better service for Canadians not for the elite right we're not talking about that kind of system but is there a way that we can potentially provide better service for all canadians
0: dr michael gardham things to think about really appreciate your thoughts tonight thanks for having me thank you
2: buy america has been the law since 1933 but for too long past administration's democrat and republican have fought to get around it not anymore Tonight I'm announcing new standards that require all construction materials used in federal infrastructure projects to be made in America. <laughs> made in America. I mean it. Lumber, glass, drywall, fiber optic cable, and on my watch, American roads, bridges, and American highways are going to be made with American products as well.
0: Well, that was the U.S. President last night, Joe Biden, delivering his third State of the Union speech. Heavy on Buy American and touting green incentives and investments to transition the U.S. economy to a carbon-free future. So what? impact will those policies actually have on Canada? To discuss the issue, we're now joined by Pedro Antunes, Chief Economist for the Conference Board of Canada, and Brett House, former Vice President and Deputy Chief Economist at Scotiabank, currently Fellow with the Public Policy Forum, the Monk School and Massey College. Hello to both of you. Hi, good good to see see you. Pedro, I'll get you to start us off there because, you know, I said impact, but perhaps I should have said challenges, because already the Canadian manufacturers and exporters say this is bad news for Canada. What are we looking at with this kind of policy direction from the United States?
4: Well, I, I mean, first of all, it, it flies in the face of uh, kind of our free trade agreements and uh, certainly it could have been a little more inclusive of North America and our recently signed agreement within uh, within those boundaries. Uh, but I think deep down the problem for Canada here is this continues to erode our private investment in essentially uh, um, essentially building up our capacity uh, whether it be uh, you know retooling investment or or new structures uh, when we look at the you know, the recent history, let's say uh, from uh, the Trump administration right through to today, uh, we've seen essentially an erosion in in private investment in Canada, uh, especially in comparison to the U.S. or many other jurisdictions. And, And private investment, again, this is the capital that helps build our productive capacity, that builds our incomes, that builds our uh, you know, essentially our per capita wealth uh, over time, and uh, you know we're at 10% of GDP in terms of our investment. Uh, the U.S. is uh, around 15%. So this just adds to that uncertainty. It takes away, uh, you know, it, it adds to the uncertainty of businesses around their access to the U.S. consumer, and of course here specifically on infrastructure. And I might add, uh, I think the other implication here is for the U.S., of course, because uh, what doesn't come across from these protectionist policies is that. U.S. consumers, U.S. households are going to pay more in the end uh, for their products and services as well.
0: Well, that difficulty aside, Pedro, of course, making this harder is the fact that no, no matter how divided the U.S. Congress is, buying American is, as we saw, a policy that both Democrats and Republicans agree on. So, so Brad, picking up on, on something that Pedro had to say, doesn't Kuzma or the very fact that we have this integrated supply chain between our two countries, does that not do anything to protect Canadian access to those contracts?
3: Well, you're right to point to Canada's renegotiated NAFTA with the United States as a potential source of security and comfort uh, in light of the State of the Union address. This Buy America provision for federal contracts was a major sticking point in the renegotiation of NAFTA. And in the end, Canadian and U.S. negotiators agreed to disagree and to leave access to federal procurement up to and governed under World Trade Organization uh, provisions under the government procurement agreement. And so the State of the Union address doesn't change that. It certainly puts a chilling effect on any American contractors that might want to bring in Canadians as partners, but it doesn't reduce direct access for Canadian suppliers to federal procurement in the U.S. It does, however, raise some big questions about what happens for Canadian suppliers to state and local governments that are funded by federal dollars in the U.S. And there, the WTO GPA doesn't apply and leaves us in a situation where we have much less access potentially than we might have imagined.
0: So I'm wondering how Canada should be responding to all of this then, Pedro, because you talked about investment and on the one hand it is buying American, but it's also those environmental incentives and investments that the U.S. is making to essentially attract Investment to their country rather than to ours. So, how should Canada be reacting to that?
4: Well, it's it has been a very tough uh, uh, situation for Canada, and, and uh, again, attracting investment has, is continues to be a challenge. Uh, I mean, if we go back to the Trump administration, I, I think it really was that uncertainty I mean, we could wake up to a tweet uh, with a new tariff announced. Uh, you know, there was a threat of dissolving NAFTA, which I think was very scary. Uh, and I know for a fact that there are firms that decided to move their operations from uh, uh, from Canadian uh, places, uh, essentially from c- Canadian uh, sites to uh, to the U.S. because of the threat. Uh, of some of this and and i think the threat continues if we go back to uh, president Bi- uh, biden's first act was to essentially uh, ixnay or, uh, or cancel uh, Keystone XL, and as you as you may have heard recently, uh, now the U.S. is buying uh, heavy oil, which competes with Alberta's heavy oil from uh, from Venezuela, of all places. Uh, so again, I think there's a, a lot of misdirected uh, policies that are happening that that hurt that investment intention. Uh, so that's kind of the 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 mood and the scope uh, that adds to that uncertainty, uh, that uncertain environment for business. Uh, I think the other thing, of course, is the, the real incentives that are there in the Inflation Reduction Act. We know that corporate tax rates with the Trump presidency came down, and we're no longer competitive on that front. So there are things that the Canadian government can do uh, to uh, help level the, the playing field here. Mm-hmm.
0: And Brett, what would you say to that? What can Canada do to, to counter all this, to attract investment to this country, beyond just getting access to the United States?
3: Well, this is a big source of discussion right now as we prepare for the 2023 federal budget there are some quarters that are arguing for federal spending that at least matches in a proportionate way the provisions of the so-called inflation reduction act that the biden administration passed back in the summer of 2022 that act puts in place enormous subsidies uh, for green and electric vehicle manufacturers and other uh, climate related investment in the u.s and ties those subsidies to um, procurement happening within the US. And so if we were to actually try to match those, I think it could bankrupt the Canadian governments. We not only have to match dollars in some ways, we have to do it in a way that is smarter, uh, more cost efficient, and diversifies uh, our opportunities with additional markets and with additional partnerships uh, with American governments and uh, manufacturers to ensure that we're enmeshed even more closely in their supply chains.
0: Well, certainly this government had to move quickly when Donald Trump tried to uh, cancel uh, NAFTA, so we'll have to see how they react to this. But for now, uh, Brett House, Pedro Antunes, thank you for this. Really appreciate the time.
5: Good to speak with you.
0: And that is our program for this Wednesday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow.